Good morning, everybody. I'm here live, not by video screen this morning. And uh, just as Troy said, our Israel tour was really wonderful. It was. Wasn't it great, Franklin? Yes, of course. So we just had the most wonderful time. And, uh, you know, if it's possible for you to join us, I I know it's a big thing. I, I don't take it lightly. What a, what a large time it is to get away and the cost and all of that. But all, all I can say is that it was a tremendous blessing for all of us who were able to go. And thanks so much for your prayers, because we know that people's prayers behind us made all the difference for it. And it was kind of cool that it worked out for us to, you know, do the video here. Now, I, I, I don't know, and maybe I'm not supposed to say this. I'll, I'll look. Uh, I don't know. Troy is usually the one I look to look at. He doesn't know what I'm going to ask, though, so I just... Okay, we're we're... We're live streaming our services now. Now, you're not supposed to know that because otherwise, like on a rainy day like this, you'd stay home and, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'll just live stream. But don't do that. No, but for people... So when we were in Israel last Sunday, I was watching myself on a video from Israel, from a hotel room in Israel. It was really weird. And it felt like it might be the sin of pride, but I wasn't really sure. It was really strange. So, but it was great to, to see that and glad that it all came off well. So, although I am super excited to be back now in the book of Acts, so open up with me now. Acts chapter 17 will come together to our text this morning, starting at verse 1. Acts 17. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us back safely. Thank you for blessing our tour to Israel. Uh, Lord, thank you for blessing this congregation in our absence. But Lord, now we look to you for a blessing right now from heaven. We've worshipped you with all of our hearts. We've sung to you, Lord. We've heard of the good things that you're doing in our midst. We've prayed together. We've given unto you, Lord, from our resources. And now, Lord, we believe, we believe, Jesus, that you want to serve your people now by ministering to them through your word. So, Lord, speak above and beyond and greater than any of the words I could say. Speak directly to the hearts of your people and bring forth your word by your spirit to your people here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we begin at Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 1, where we continue with Paul on what's called his second missionary journey. Uh, Of course, Paul knew that he had already had a first missionary journey, probably some five years before the events of this one. And in the previous portion that we considered in the book of Acts, Paul had just come from the city of Philippi, where God did dramatic things, ended up with Paul's imprisonment, an earthquake, him being set free, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. All this is in the last study that we looked together. And you could look that up online or at our media desk or whatever you please. But at the end of it all, Paul got kicked out of Philippi, which was his story at a lot of different cities. And it's going to be his story in cities that we take a look at today. He got kicked out of Philippi and they sent him on his way to a city called Thessalonica. Verse 1, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphorus, Amphilios and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. 
So here they are on their way from Philippi to Thessalonica, and they stop by two different cities on the way through. Uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they make their way through from one city to another and eventually travel the about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. It would have been about a three-day journey, and they came to a place that today is still a thriving city in Greece today. So what does Paul do? He did the same thing he does every time he comes to a new city. Verse 2 tells us that he did as his custom was. He went to the synagogue and he preached Jesus crucified and Jesus risen again to both the Jewish people of the synagogue. But I'm going to remind you of something. That in those days, synagogue attenders were not strictly Jewish. At every Jewish synagogue around the Roman Empire, you would have not only Jewish people there in the community, but you would also have a group of Gentiles that were normally known as God-fearers. These were people who had a respect for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a respect for the God of Israel, yet for whatever reason, they didn't go all the way and submit themselves to the customs and the practices of Judaism. So even speaking at a synagogue, Paul would be speaking to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. So what did he do? Well, he presented Jesus to them in several notable ways. Look how it's broken down here, starting in verse 2. First of all, it says in verse 2 that he reasoned with them according to the scriptures or from the scriptures. It's very interesting. According to one commentator, the Greek word that's translated reasoned here is the root for our English word to dialogue. So Paul basically said this to the people at the synagogue. Hey, let's talk about the scriptures. Let's talk about the Bible. Isn't that great? He went in there and he reasoned. He dialogued. You you people have an appreciation for the Old Testament. He told the people at the synagogue, why would they be at the synagogue if they had no appreciation for the Old Testament? Well, let's talk about it. What about this passage? What about that passage? Let me hear your thoughts. Well, I'll tell you what my thoughts are. There was a dialogue, a discussion. But that's not all that he did. Next, we see that he did the work of explaining. That's in verse 3. It says that he was explaining to them. And that word literally means opening. Basically, it's what I hope to be doing here on a Sunday morning. I hope to be opening the scriptures, be explaining. Just here it is, opening them up. See, this is what it says. Let's understand it together. So there was dialogue. There was explanation or opening the scriptures with clarity and with simplicity, just trying to make it known. And then finally, verse 3 also says, and this would be the third part, that he was demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, the idea behind that word demonstrating, it has the idea of trying to be persuasive. So first, dialogue. Then let's just, uh, let me open up the scriptures. Let me teach you the scriptures, open them up to you. And then you know what I want to do? I want to persuade you. Isn't that a great way to do it? Let's dialogue. Then let me teach you. Let me instruct you into what the scripture says. But then at the end of it all, I want to persuade you. And what did he want to persuade them of? Demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. He's presenting evidence. He's showing them this scriptural passage. Look at what the scriptures say. This is all pointed out for us. Look at what the evidence says. You could interview the people there. I've known people who have seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. This is true. And this is what the scriptures say. Now, in all of this, Paul was emphasizing something. In all of the reasoning, and all of the explaining, and all of the demonstrating, notice what his topic was. Verse 3 says, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. 
He emphasized who Jesus is. Very important, right? Secondly, he demonstrated to them what Jesus did for them. Verse 3, that he would suffer and rise again from the dead. I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I worry about this a little bit. A preacher can feel, is he getting too repetitive with people? But I feel like the important things, I need to hammer home again and again and again. So if this sounds a little bit familiar to you, then just rejoice that you've got a preacher that I hope wants to reinforce good things to you. We must again and again and again present to people who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. That's the center of it all, isn't it? It's not a campaign about uh, church membership or this list of rules or that list of regulations. What do we want to preach? We want to preach Christ and him crucified, who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross in the empty tomb. It's not that complicated, but unfortunately it's a lot. It's all too rare in our day and age who Jesus is, and what he did for us. And this is exactly what Paul was doing there in the synagogue at Thessalonica. He did it by reasoning. He did it by explaining. He did it by demonstrating. But the whole point of it was, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he came to do. Well, notice verse 4, this was the effect. Some of them were persuaded. You mean, among those hearers, there was a good response from some of them. And when it says some, it's not just a few. Because the text goes on to tell us in verse 4 that it was a great multitude of devout Greeks. That would be those God-fearer type peoples that I told you about before. But then also some very prominent Jewish women. And many of them, it said not a few of the leading women. By all accounts, those days of preaching in the synagogue at Thessalonica were a great success. It says a great multitude believed and not a few. Isn't that great? And we've seen this from place to place where Paul does his missionary work in these different cities. He preaches Jesus. He doesn't preach one message one place and another message another place. He preaches Jesus, who he is and what he's done from city to city, and there's a great response to it. But then we've seen the counter response that we're going to notice here in verse 5. Let's look at this. 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Are you letting the movie run in your mind with all of this? Did you notice it in verse 5? There were Jews there who were not persuaded, and they became envious, and they took some of the evil men of the marketplace, and they gathered a mob, and they set all the city in an uproar. Now, it's happened again for Paul, right? This wasn't the first time. It happened at Pisidian Antioch. It happened at Iconium. It happened at Lystra. And it happened in Philippi to some measure. This happens all the time to Paul. It's no unusual thing. You, you might call this the Occupy Thessalonica movement of its day, right? And uh, any similarities or differences to the modern day, I'll just let you figure those out. But, but if I could say something about that whole Occupy Wall Street, Occupy movement. I, I, was, I was reading something 
on an online magazine this week where a woman wrote this, and she was quoting another author. Let me quote this to you. She says, As Matt Talabi wrote recently in Rolling Stone about learning to love Occupy Wall Street, he said, People don't know exactly what they want, but as one friend of mine put it, they know one thing. Expletive this expletive. We want something different, a different life with different values or at least a chance at different values. Right? So you see, without even knowing it, they want Jesus. Without even knowing it, Jesus Christ offers. Well, it's true, isn't it? And you know, when I see a, a rebellious streak in people, when I see people who are given to, you know, uh, revolt or, or rebellion or resistance or things like that, my immediate impulse is, what a great impulse. Just channel it in the right direction. You see, folks like that, like the folks who is man who is quoted right here in this article, he doesn't even know it, but he really wants Jesus. And if he's really disillusioned, I pray that he can become really enlightened in the truest sense of the word, of what enlightenment really is to have the light of Jesus Christ shine on his life. Listen, then if you want to go out and work for whatever changes in society, God would have you do it wonderful. But you know, you can achieve all of that and still have the most profound emptiness of soul that the world has ever seen. We would pray that their rebellious impulses might be directed towards the proper things. How about this? Rebel against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now that's real rebellion, right? The rest of the world just swims right along in obedience to the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you really want to be a rebel, follow Jesus Christ in any regard. This whole mob, verse 5 says, that they attacked the house of Jason. And Jason was a Christian Thessalonica. And his house seems to have been a center for some of the Christian activity. And so when the evil men from the marketplace came and they didn't find Paul and Silas there at Jason's house, they attacked Jason himself and some of the brethren who were with him. And what did they do? Verse 6 says, they cried out. This is classic, verse 6. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, without even intending to, this mob of, of, of rabble, whatever you would call them, from the streets of Thessalonica, they accused these Christians in a way that actually played them a wonderful compliment. They looked at Paul. They looked at Silas. They looked at this community of Christians. And they said, you're changing everything in the world. And I think Paul, if he would have heard those words, which I'm sure he did one way or another, he said, gee, do you really think so? See, the problem is with these folks is that they thought that the world was right side up to begin with, right? And when Paul was doing was actually turning it right side up, but to the rest of the world, it looked upside down. What they were actually saying was something like this. These men have radically impacted our world and nothing else seems the same. Well, good on you for that. What a testimony to their work. And I would say this, that God willing and God blessing, people would say the same things about the effectiveness of Christianity today. That would be a good thing if people pointed the finger at us and shouted the word at us. You're turning the world upside down. Well, thank you very much. That's what we intend to do. 
My friends, Jesus didn't come only to be our teacher. Jesus came to turn our world upside down. You know it very well, right? That God's ways are not necessarily our ways. That God's thinking is not necessarily our thinking. You know that, don't you? Well, when God has to set our ways and our thinking after his ways, oftentimes it feels to us like we're being turned upside down. Now, there's so many examples of this, more that I can count in the uh, Bible about front and back about uh, this, this same principle. But let me just give you one example from the scriptures from, from Luke chapter 12, how Jesus gave this wonderful example of this upside down thinking. He spoke about a rich man who had great wealth. And all that rich man could think about was building bigger and bigger barns, right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm rich. I'm doing great in business. Well, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to build more barns to store more of my stuff. And he looked like an utter success. We might make that man a civic leader today or recognize him as a prominent man in the community. Do you know what Jesus said of that man? Jesus took a look at that man and he said, you're a fool because you've made no provision for your soul. There you are. You've made all your money. You've succeeded in life. There you are. You've done all these wonderful things. Good on you for all of that success. But you know what you've neglected? You've neglected your very soul. And that in and of itself, it makes you a fool. Now, let's face it. According to the thinking of this world, that's upside down thinking, isn't it? But it's right side up in the kingdom of God. God was working through Paul and Silas to turn the world right side up again. But when you yourself are upside down, And the other direction appears to be wrong. Verse 7. They said, these are all acting according to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, that was a very serious accusation to make by the evil men from the marketplace. That charge was serious enough that they troubled the crowd. Look at it there in verse 8. It troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things because it raised the fear that their city might become known as opposition against Caesar in Rome. Now, let me say something very plainly. When they accused Paul and Silas of political subversion, of trying to undermine the authority of the Roman government, when they accused Paul and Silas of that, they were wrong. They were lying. They were misrepresenting them altogether. You see, even though the gospel has definite political implications... I'll say it again. The gospel has definite political implications. And just as a tack on to that, let me say this. Christians, you better vote. And you better vote your Christian conscience. I don't want to sound it, you know, alarmist about that, but but shame on you if you don't vote your Christian conscience. I'm not going to tell you which candidate or which issues. You just vote and vote your Christian conscience. I think this is what God would have you to do. So Christianity will affect us in a political sense. But listen, it will make us better citizens than before. And our prayers for the government officials are more helpful than people can ever, ever imagine. Now, friends, this is absolutely important to understand that their accusations of political subversion were not true. They were not correct. But I will say this. Even the unfounded accusation of political revolution had a compliment that was hidden inside of it. You see, even the evil men from the marketplace understood that Paul preached Jesus as king. They didn't understand what kind of king, right? They thought a rival king to Caesar. But they understood Paul preached Jesus as king. And they say, I want to preach Jesus as king as well. 
I don't want to preach Jesus merely as sometimes preachers say this. I guess it's an okay way to phrase it. I don't want to preach Jesus to you merely as fire insurance, right? Just as, as a ticket to get you out of hell. That, that, that somebody you can ignore your daily life, it doesn't matter at all, but, but you have some ticket in your hand that, that'll get you through to heaven on the day of judgment. You show it you know, in the minds of some people. You stand in pearly gates and on clouds and you hand some kind of ticket to St. Peter and that means when you get in, okay, great. Friends, that's not recognize that Jesus is a king. He's a king over our lives. And this is what he wants to do. He wants to take his rightful authority in your life and in my life. Well, they misunderstood what kind of king Paul and Silas were talking about, but they understood that they were calling people to obey Jesus as their Lord, as their master. Well, continuing on now, verse 9 and the first part of verse 10 where it says, So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So what did they do? Jason and the others were released once that they let a security deposit to guarantee against any future riots. Because, again, put yourself in the mind of a Roman official. Roman officials really didn't care what you believed and your personal beliefs. They didn't care. They had dozens of gods. What, what does it matter if you add one more god, Jesus, to it? What the Romans were very concerned about was public order. You start messing with public order, that's what bothers us. So lay down a security. You won't cause a riot. You won't mess up the public order. Fine. And then the first part of verse 10 says that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They left Thessalonica quickly. They didn't want to bring any more persecution upon Jason or the Christians there or to jeopardize Jason's security deposit. He only spent a few weeks in Thessalonica, but they made their way from that city now all the way over to Berea, which wasn't a far distance, maybe about 40 miles. Look at what happens here, starting in the middle of verse 10. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So what happens here? Well, they make their way from Thessalonica, traveling westward over to Berea. Again, it's not a terribly long distance, probably one long day's walk. And when they arrived, verse 10 at the end of it, they went into the synagogue of the Jews and they followed their familiar strategy. They found that their audience there was, did you notice that in verse 11? More fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, why would they be more fair-minded? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, verse 11 They received the word with all readiness. That made them more fair-minded. Secondly, they searched the scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, think about those two things. Number one, they received the word with all readiness. Number two, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things were so. Now, I want you to think about that. The Bereans, the people there at the synagogue in Berea, They heard the teaching of the most famous apostle and theologian of the early church, the Apostle Paul. They heard the author of more than or at least 13 New Testament books that are attributed to him. Yet what did they do? When they heard the Apostle Paul preach, they looked it up in their Bible to make sure that he was on track. Isn't that a great thing? I think it's a great thing. 
I love it when somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I don't understand this that you taught, Pastor. It doesn't seem to say that in my Bible. What about that? That's a wonderful thing. You guys should be teaching that. You should be receiving it that way. Listen, I think I speak the truth to you. I I endeavor to with all my heart. But I need to warn you, not every man that opens up a Bible and starts reading Bible verses is really teaching you truth in the Bible. It isn't necessarily a match. You have to do exactly what the Bereans did. It says that they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. They checked for themselves. You see, when the Bereans heard the the Apostle Paul preach, their settled reaction wasn't like this. They didn't say, oh my, he's a fine speaker. It wasn't this, oh, I like the way he talks. It wasn't, oh, what an amazing or funny or entertaining preacher. Instead, the Bereans wanted to know, are these things so? Does the man teach the truth? We've got to search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so, because I said to you before, not everyone who opens a Bible and starts talking is really teaching the Bible. And look, if you break it down, look again at verse 11 there. See what it says about their research. It wasn't casual. It says, first of all, they searched the scriptures. Friends, there's some things in the scriptures that are just going to come to you by searching. You've got to search it. You can't just take a casual look at it. You can't just read it with sort of a blah, 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 speed reading through the Bible. You've got to search the scriptures. Number two, they searched the scriptures what? Daily. They made it regular. It wasn't a one-time quick look. They made it a point of diligent, extended study. They searched the scriptures daily And then notice this, they search the scriptures daily to find out, to find something out. You see, they believed that they could read the Bible and catch this, read the Bible and find out truth from the Bible. From them, the Bible wasn't just a pretty book of poetry or mystery or spiritual inspiration or thoughts for the day. The Bible was a book of truth and the truth was there to find out. So they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. But listen, with all of their diligence, with all of their searching, with all of their sort of hard-nosed investigation, they still, look at the first part of verse 11, they received the word with all readiness. When Paul preached, they had open hearts. Now, they had clear heads, but they had open hearts. Many people have clear heads, but closed hearts. And there's some people who have fuzzy heads and open hearts. You don't have to choose between the two, right? A clear head and an open heart. That means receiving the word with all readiness. It was these things that made the Bereans more noble, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And the result of it all, look at it there in verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed. You see, Paul had nothing to fear by the diligent searching of the scriptures by the Bereans. If they were really seeking God, if they were really seeking his word, then they would find out that what Paul was preaching was true. This is exactly what happened among the Bereans. Friends, read your Bibles more. Check what I teach more. Ask me difficult questions more. I don't have every answer. 
But listen, I love it when somebody comes up to me and says, what about this? And I have to say, ooh, you're right. I think I was wrong on that. I'll have to teach that different. Listen, because to me, the final authority is not me. It's not you. It's the word of God itself. So we search the scriptures diligently and daily to find out if these things are so. Well, now notice this. What happens at the end of this all, starting at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and having received a command for Silas and Timothy to come with them with all speed, they departed. So what happens? Well, some people were not happy with what Paul was doing in Berea. It was becoming too popular. Too many people were believing. Too many people were coming to trust in who Jesus is and what he had did for them, done for them, I should say, on the cross. And so those people from Thessalonica weren't content to only drive Paul out of their own city. They made the walk all the way over to Berea to drive Paul out of that city as well. Verse 13 says that they stirred up the crowds. Now, by my count, this is at least the fifth city that Paul was run out of by an angry mob. How'd you like that on your resume, right? You're going to hire that guy for your next pastor? Well, maybe you should, right? How many cities have you been run out of by angry mobs? Well, that was the Apostle Paul in this situation, right? Because fearlessly he preached, and he would preach for as long as he could, but when it was time for him to go, when the angry mob was pushing him out, He went, verse 14 says, immediately the brethren sent Paul away. The Christians in Berea sent Paul away to Athens, fearing for his life and a total disruption of the work there. But notice what else it says in verse 14. It says, but both Silas and Timothy remain there. You see, Paul said to Silas and Timothy, you guys stay in Berea. There's something good going on here. I don't want to leave this work without some people who can develop it. I'll go, but you guys stay. And to me, that simple act of Paul leaving Silas and Timothy behind in Berea speaks very powerfully. Because Paul started across the Aegean Sea into Europe with a team of four. He left Luke and Philippi. He didn't leave anybody in Thessalonica because apparently the church was doing well enough there with Jason and everybody else there. But now in Berea, he leaves his other two assistants, Timothy and Silas, and he goes all by himself on to Athens. He took this already weak, small team that he had, and he divided it even more because Paul cared very deeply about those congregations that he left behind. Now, this is important to me on a few different levels. First of all, it shows me this. It shows me that Paul cared very deeply about discipleship, not just conversion. You say, discipleship, what does that mean? Well, it's actually sort of a Christian buzzword, isn't it? But discipleship simply means to go further, to go deeper, to go more mature in your Christian life. Paul was not concerned with just getting people, so to speak, to sign up on the enrollment list of Christianity. But he wanted to teach them and to train them into what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, not just once a week, but every day of their lives. And friends, I don't know about you, but to me, that's very precious. It speaks to me. 
It speaks to me about my own life, and it speaks to me about what we should be as a congregation. Yes, we should have a great passion for bringing people to Christ and a greater and greater passion for it. But we should also have a passion for bringing people, you, I, all of us collectively, into a greater and greater maturity to go further with the Lord to a greater depth in our walk with the Lord from ever. Paul thought that so important that he left Silas and Timothy back in Berea. You know what else it shows me that I think is wonderful? That Paul never thought he was a one-man show. He never thought, well, listen, it's no use to leave Silas and Timothy here, right? If I can't be left in Berea, then nobody should be left in Berea. No. Paul recognized that God gives his gifts. He gives his graces broadly in the body of Christ. And he said, you know what? If I can't stay here, I would love to stay in Berea. Who wouldn't want to preach to a crowd like the Bereans for a long, long time? If I can't stay here, fine. I'm going to leave Silas and Timothy here for them to do the work because God's Holy Spirit can work in them just as much as he worked by me. That's a wonderful thing. So here we end it. Now next week, we get into Paul's time in a city called Athens. Oh, man, is that great next Sunday. What Paul did in Athens. Somewhat controversial, too. Read ahead and think about it. Was Paul a success or a failure in Athens? We'll talk about that then. But listen, I want you to think about just these two cities because I think the two cities that we've looked at today, Thessalonica and Berea, speak to us about something very, very strong. Now, was the work of God strong and successful in both cities as Paul left them? Yes. Thriving Christian communities left behind in Thessalonica and in Berea. But what I find interesting is that Thessalonica, to me, sort of illustrates the preacher's responsibility. What's the preacher's responsibility? The preacher's responsibility is to reason, to explain, and to demonstrate all about who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? That's what the preacher's job is. And I'm here to reason, to explain, to demonstrate, to do that as strong as I can and to keep it focused on who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's the preacher's responsibility. Now, what's the congregation's or the people's responsibility? That's illustrated by Berea, right? Their responsibility is to receive the word with all readiness and then to search the scriptures for themselves, to do it daily, and then with the purpose of finding out what God says in his word. You know how wonderful it is when the preacher's doing what he should do And what the people are doing, what they should do, you see the work of God happen in a marvelous, marvelous way. Listen, I just want to tell you, I think that that has been the legacy of this congregation in the past. And God helping me and God helping us collectively together, both as a leadership and a congregation, that's going to be our legacy going on in the future. We'll do what God has called us to do both as preachers and as a congregation And God's work is going to go forward in this community in a wonderful, wonderful way. Shouldn't it be that way? I believe so. Let's pray that it would be. Father in heaven, that is our prayer. Lord, we pray that the matchless work of Jesus Christ would be lifted up again and again. That who he is in all of his fullness and the greatness of the work that he did on the cross to die as a substitute in our place, 
that it would be preached, that it would be received, that it would be searched out and believed again and again, over and over. Do it, Lord. Here we are, Jesus. We're simply your people. We're here in your midst. And we ask for you to speak to us now. I want to pray in particular, Lord, that you would move upon the hearts of of any people here, Lord, yet, who have yet to trust in you. Lord, won't you move them to do so? Won't you move them, Jesus, to put their faith in you? And Father, to receive what only you can give. King Jesus. King Jesus who rescues us, not only now, but in the age to come. King Jesus who's our life. Move upon those who you're calling to yourself. Move upon all who will believe. Move upon them now. Friends, while heads are bowed, eyes are closed reverently before the Lord, I, I, I shouldn't leave without just simply inviting people to put their trust in Jesus. This is all you need to do. You need to look at Jesus crucified and say, He did for you on that cross what you could never do for yourself. That Jesus died to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay. If you've never received that before, why not? If you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you're crying out for a different kind of life, a different kind of values, a a different kind of living, Jesus Christ is here to offer it to you, but you have to come to him by way of the cross. So if that's you, I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. You need to pray it. You don't need to shout it. You can say it in a whispered voice. But pray it now in sincerity of heart before you. Lord Jesus, I come to you knowing I need you. I come to you with a heart full of repentance. I want a different life. I want different values. I don't know if I can change the world, Jesus, but I want you to change me. So I look to you, Jesus, on the cross bearing the penalty for my sins, and I say, I receive it. I trust in it. I connect with that by faith right now. Fill my life, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. In Jesus' name.